Bible Church on the web at wagp.net. Good morning and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859 or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Welcome to the Bible Line. This is an hour we have together where we can dialogue over the only book God ever wrote. We call it the Holy Bible. If you have a question this morning that you'd like to ask in your study or Maybe you're seeking biblical counsel uh, on how to uh, face an area of your life, your home, your marriage, your job. Well, if we can help, all you need to do is pick up the phone. Again, the number locally is 525-1859. For those who are listening through the Internet, we have a toll-free number. That number is 877. Our call letters, WAGP 980, 877-WAGP 980. We also get emails during the show uh, directly here into the studio, and we can receive those if you go to TBL, standing for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. Now, when you call, you can go on the air live. Uh, Many people don't feel comfortable doing that, and they simply want to dictate their question and remain totally anonymous. And if that's what you'd like to do, we'd be happy to receive it that way as well. Rick, as always, it's great to be here this morning for the Bible Line. Indeed it is, Pastor, and we've got a number of calls that have come in. Uh, In addition, we've got a number of questions from all over the country, so let's get to them right now. This first person says, I know a church that believes Jesus fulfilled the first half of the week to the Jews and that the tribulation was the second half of the week, making the tribulation only three and a half years. Have you ever heard of this belief? Um, it's usually not quite described that way. Uh, it's it's a discussion really over what's called the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel. And if you go to searchthescriptures.org, you might want to listen to that sermon because I preached all the way through the book of Daniel. This is one of the most amazing prophecies in all of the word of God. It is so incredibly precise that, uh, well, the liberals don't know what to do with it. What they have done with it historically is they said, well, it's too precise. No one can foretell the future. Well, of course, if you start with that bias that uh, a man of God cannot write under the inspiration of God and predict the future, then you're going to have to come up with another explanation. And Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy is so incredibly precise. They say, well, Daniel is recording history. He's writing it after the fact. Uh, But in my series on Daniel, I show how that's impossible. The liberal scholar very often puts, uh, you know, Daniel as being about the third century B.C. because of the preciseness of some of the prophecies in the book as it unfolds. But when you come to Daniel 11, he makes some prophecies uh, concerning Antiochus, Epiphanes, uh, who becomes a picture of the coming Antichrist. 
And in Daniel 11, uh, he makes a number of prophecies that actually take place and were literally fulfilled just as he predicted during the intertestamental period under Alexander the Great and after he was killed, his four generals and so forth. Um, So normally what people do is they make the whole 70th week a history. Um, And this is not just uh, liberal scholars that have done this. Uh, but others as well. It says, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on one who makes desolate. Uh, the, The Roman Catholic Church argued the Jesuits from about the 12th century on the Jesuits were the teaching order of the Roman Church. Uh, the Pope said we need some official men who can uh, teach church doctrine and teach our view of the Bible. And the Jesuits came up with the uh, perspective that the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy was historical, that it was fulfilled in the uh, first century. The problem with that is really twofold. Uh, Jesus and the Olivet Discourse, which by the way, they make history as well, all the way until the second coming of Christ. And a number of the reformers did this largely due to their influence of Catholic theology on their life. They they introduced reform to the doctrine of salvation, soteriology, and to some other areas. But there were areas that they, they didn't really explore in depth and, and really remain very Catholic. So Luther and Calvin were very Catholic, say, in their baptism. They, they didn't really change. They put a different spin on it, but they were still very Catholic, and as they were in their eschatology and their doctrine of, of future things. Uh, nonetheless, um, when you read Matthew 24, it's really very, very clear that Jesus, one, doesn't see Daniel as a historian, but as a prophet. Uh, in Matthew twenty four fifteen, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel, the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let him who's on the housetop not go down and so on and so forth. And he describes a, a horrible time in human history. He says in verse 21, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. So if you take Matthew 24 and the horrible events that are described uh, as being historical, if you take Daniel's prophecy as being historical and already fulfilled in the first century, you have some serious problems. The 70th week prophecy is not in conjunction with the church. It's in conjunction with Israel. It's uh, telling, uh, remember who Daniel's reading um, when you, it's very interesting because when he begins this uh, great prayer that's recorded in the book of Daniel, he's, he's reading Jeremiah the prophet according to Daniel 9 and verse 2. And Dan, Jeremiah the prophet speaks of what's called the time of Jacob's trouble. Uh, we call it under new covenant terms the great tribulation period. But the time of Jacob's trouble is the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy where God is going to move on human humanity in a way that is going to bring the Jew to conversion. And the promise of the new covenant that Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36 speaks of will be literally fulfilled 
in the lives of Jewish people. Now, there's application and fulfillment today in the body of Christ, as Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10 indicates, but it will be literally fulfilled in the Jewish people. It's what Paul spoke of in Romans 9, 10, and 11. In 9, he speaks of Israel's election as a nation, 10 of their rejection as a nation, but 11 of their future restoration that is yet to happen. And so you cannot take really even the events of the first century and say that uh, this was all fulfilled in the first century with the exception of the second coming, as the Jesuits did, and as some modified positions that you've mentioned here in your question. Because Jesus describes a time in human history that is unparalleled. Um, even, you know, horrible times in human history, like the Second World War, uh, when you had, you know, millions of people starved to death where you had, you know, 10 million Russians killed and so forth, Uh, uh, 2.5 million Jews exterminated in Poland, 6 million total. That really dulls compared to what Revelation 6 and Revelation 9 speaks of, because when you read Revelation 6 and 9, it's very clear that 50% of the world's population will be killed. 50% of the world's population will die just with two of the judgments that God is going to bring. So there's there's no possible way even Titus coming down in 70 AD and you know destroying Jerusalem and crucifying 28,000 Jews and so forth could even begin to fulfill the literal prophecies that God speaks of in the Revelation. And really if you look carefully at Matthew 24, Matthew 24 3 through 14 describes the first half of the tribulation. Then in the middle of the week, which Daniel 9 speaks of, in the middle of the week, and a week being seven years and Daniel's uh, timing of things, if you read Daniel carefully, and you might want to go and listen to that sermon, in the middle of that seven years, uh, Jesus said what Daniel the prophet spoke of is going to happen, the abomination of desolation. Uh, The Antichrist is going to go into a rebuilt temple, make himself out to be God, and when that event takes place, look out, because there'll be an un paralleled time of suffering in human history like the world has never seen or will ever see again. Uh, That's never happened, but it's going to happen. Jesus said it would happen. Daniel predicted it would happen, and it will happen. And we may be edging towards those days even as I speak. Great question. Let's let's go to the next one. Well, while you're on the subject of Matthew 24, our next uh, email comes from an individual who writes, This weekend in our discovery class, We studied God's prophetic calendar. I noticed that in the handout that Matthew 24 was applied to the rapture and the teacher applied it to the rapture. Matthew 24 has always been a challenge for me to understand because clearly in context it appears Jesus is referring to his second coming at the end of the tribulation period. Yet how would people be eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage in the tribulation? Life in the tribulation, as you just said, would be very different as we know it today. So why would Jesus have to warn them to be ready so much and not be caught up with the affairs of life in the tribulation. Could you please explain this for me? Well, the the handout does not apply Matthew 24 uh, to the rapture of the church. Now, I I know in some of our classes on occasion we have a substitute teacher um, because our regular discovery class teacher is gone, but it does not apply Matthew 24 to the rapture. In fact, I go through God's prophetic calendar in that handout. And and let me just give a commercial here for the discovery class. Uh, The discovery class is a 
it's designed for 35 weeks. It often takes 45 or 50 because it is set up in a way that people can ask questions and we're going to explore those questions. In fact, the class begins every week with questions that people just jot down and put on the podium as they come in. And who's ever teaching that morning begins with those questions. And then they get into the material. Now, occasionally questions asked, and they'll say, well, we're going to spend three weeks on this and less than eight. And so we'll just defer to that. And I'll just give you a short answer or whatever. But one of the weeks deals with the return of Jesus from heaven and what that should do to our life. What is interesting is that whenever the Bible speaks of the return of Jesus, in almost every instance in the New Testament— there's an accompanying command as to how it should influence and affect our life. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians, when they study Bible prophecy, they get their head in the skies, but they don't have their feet on the earth, and they're not changed through Bible prophecy. That's one of the points of Bible prophecy. And so there's a section in that uh, handout where I go through a God's prophetic calendar that the church is currently be, being built. I take it that the, the catching up of the church— is the next event on God's prophetic calendar, that he will come first for his saints. We will meet him in the air. Um, the church will be judged in heaven at the uh, Bema judgment. Uh, the tribulation will be unfolding upon the earth. And again, the, the great tribulation period is spoken of in terms of years, is seven years, as described by the prophet Daniel. Uh, the book of Revelation also paints it as exactly seven years in length. Um, Matthew 24 is describing the events of the tribulation period. It's not dealing with the rapture. It's giving signs that will lead up to the second coming. There are no signs for the rapture. If you believe in the imminent return of Christ, if you believe Christ can come at any moment, any moment, then you cannot say that there are signs for the catching up of the church. Now, people have taken imminency in different ways, and let me explain. Um, you, you have people who are amillennial. That is, they do not believe there's a millennial reign of Christ, um, that he will literally rule upon the earth for a thousand years, and they just see the next event that is going to take place as uh, the uh, second coming of Christ. Uh, many in covenant theology today take this view. And so when they look at the prophecies of Matthew 24, they say they were fulfilled in the first century. And I just addressed that issue, that if you literally interpret the Bible, and by literal I'm not ignoring figures of speech and um, you know so on, uh, but, but if you just take a plain historical, grammatical interpretation of the Bible, you, you can't come to that conclusion. It's impossible. And so uh, some who have taken an imminent return of Christ because they say, well, no, there is a sense that Jesus could come back at any second. So they basically eliminate the tribulation is already happened historically. And they say, well, the next event is the second coming. So Jesus could come back today. People who believe in a literal tribulation period that is yet in the future, and that's the plain reading of Scripture, then clearly the second coming, for it to happen, there's a lot of things that haven't happened. Uh, There has to be a one-world ruler called Antichrist who will indeed commit the abomination of desolation that Daniel 9 and Matthew 24 speaks of. 
there has to be a rebuilt temple, as Paul describes in Second Thessalonians 2. Th- those things haven't happened. Um, so there's a lot that has to happen for the second coming of Christ. Nothing that has to happen for the catching up of the church. Jesus, in Matthew 24, is dealing with the Jewish calendar. He's dealing with Jewish people. And he is speaking about what will happen in reference to Israel. And yes, he can he can speak of uh, warning people because people are, are, are blind just as they were uh, in the days of Noah and the coming judgment that approached them. They were just carrying on life like nothing was going to happen. Uh, marrying, giving in marriage and so forth until the day Noah entered the ark and suddenly they will be the, the great flood came, and, and the same will be true even during the time of the tribulation period. Men will be mocking God. Men will be coming up with other explanations. You would think they would get their hearts ready just as you would have thought they would have listened to God uh, through Noah, a preacher of righteousness, but they didn't. And then suddenly the flood came. And the same will be true in reference to the return of Jesus Christ. Men won't pay attention. They will not be ready um, they will mock God, they will blaspheme God, they will kill God's men uh, who will be preaching the gospel, they'll be beheading millions and millions of people who do come to faith during the tribulation period, who refuse to take the mark of the beast. Instead of listening to them, they'll be killing them. Uh, that that's shows really the depravity of man and the hardness of man's heart. Anyway, we could spend more time on that, but we won't. Let's go to our next question. We have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding, caller. You are on the Bible line. Thank you very much. Good morning, Pastor Brogy. Good morning. I, I just, my wife and I have been trying to help our daughter, who is Catholic, uh, and unfortunately lives 800 miles away in New Jersey. And we're trying to help her getting to uh, a Bible-believing church. Um, we went online with Dallas Theological Seminary and found one uh, in, in her area, r- relatively close by. And convincing someone that they're not being instructed in the, the proper way in, in, in the Word of God is extremely difficult if, if I don't have all the answers, and I, and I certainly don't. Um, you know, it, her daughter is almost of age, my granddaughter is almost of age for confirmation, and, and I tell them it, it, it's it's just, it, it's not right. It, in, in my heart, it's not right. Um, a child, if, if they know and understand who Jesus is and accept him into their heart, that is when I told them, then that's, that's when they're saved, you know, not, not by a sacrament of confirmation. But I could just use a little advice and perhaps some scripture that, to back up what I'm trying to teach her. Let me ask a question or two. Has your daughter met Jesus Christ in conversion? Uh I, I believe I believe she has. You know, she, we raised her in the Methodist Church, and my wife was born and raised Catholic. And we converted for my wife and went to her church because uh, we all wanted to go together. Right. And, and my daughter converted after after she got married, actually. And uh, did she marry a Catholic as well? No, no. She and her husband both converted at uh, you know a year apart because we had a granddaughter at that time. So they went through their RCIA classes, of course, and uh, and then were were confirmed into the Catholic Church, um, have been going there probably for 10 years, and uh, my wife and I have been speaking to her, and I know I know she's so unhappy in, in the Church, um, you know, especially now you know, where there are so many of the new priests that are coming that are you know unable to really speak English clearly. They're either Filipino or, or from another foreign country, and it's very right. difficult to understand them in, in, 
you know, not mocking them, but it just if, if you can't understand them, then you're really not getting that much of a message out of their, the Catholic Mass anyway. Right. It's a huge problem right now in Catholicism because there's such a a shortage of priests. Men in the United States who are willing to go into the priesthood, they're going after those countries, largely South American in some African countries where the church is growing and they're recruiting priests to come to the United States. Because uh, like in New England, for instance, where I'm from, Worcester, there's about 30 Catholic churches, and I think they've already closed more than half of them because they can't get priests to uh, fill them. Um, and then you've got people who are in rotating curriculums, almost like the old Methodist circuit rider, where instead of having one parish, they have three or four. It's a huge problem. Uh, Catholicism, in some respects, is beginning to collapse in the United States. So, yeah, you've got people who are coming in who are are foreigners, and uh, when you got a heavy, thick accent, sometimes it is difficult to understand. So, I can understand her frustration. Couple things. Let me just share a couple thoughts. Um, number one, uh, what I would try to do is definitely make sure she understands what it means to be born again. Because if you're trying to convince someone who's not born again to leave Catholicism, you're really barking up the wrong tree. Because a natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them, Paul says, because they're spiritually appraised or judged. So critical is to first deal with issues of assurance. Ask her the diagnostic questions, like on a scale of zero to 100, how certain are you? If you die, you go to heaven. Just because she says 100, don't assume that she's a believer, because probably 30% of lost people I meet will say they're 100% sure. But then ask her, well, on what basis do you think God should let someone into heaven? I would start there. I'd basically make sure she understands the gospel. And if you don't feel equipped in doing that, give her the DVD that she can watch uh, call, would you like to have God as your friend, or go online at searchthescriptures.org or cbcofbuford.org and click on that presentation, would you like to have God as your friend, and she can listen to it online, um, and it walks people through the plan of salvation. Um, being raised Catholic, um certainly looking at the gospel through their eyes, but really the the problems that Catholics have in terms of a works mentality is not all that much different from the average Protestant now in America. So they're in similar positions. Now, the temptation when you're dealing with Roman Catholic people is to go after particular doctrines, like the Lord's Supper or uh, Mary and her sinlessness or her perpetual virginity or just, you know, a, a whole host of issues that you can get on the role of the Pope. And But I always encourage people, first start with salvation. Because, you know, again, you can be wrong. You, you could believe Mary was sinless, um, immaculately conceived. We usually use that term as evangelicals in reference to Christ. They use it in reference to Christ and Mary. Uh, you could believe she was a perpetual virgin and never had other children. You could believe that and still go to heaven. Uh, but you can't be wrong on the gospel. And most often, though, when you get someone straight on the gospel, then because they're regenerated by the Spirit, on the day they're on the day you're saved, that's when regeneration takes place. Now, there's a work of the Spirit that precedes conversion, but regeneration takes place the day you're you're saved, and God gives you a new set of eyes and a new heart in which to understand truth. And sometimes, too, you can find some common ground. Like for me, if I were dealing with her on the issue of confirmation, I wouldn't say, I, w- I wouldn't focus on 
confirmation so much from the way the Catholics deal with it. I'd say, oh, this is wonderful that you're going to be confirmed. Let's talk about the true meaning of confirmation. Um, And I would kind of go from there, because what Catholics, of course, are arguing is that when the bishop anoints you with oil, as he did my head as a 12-year-old boy, that at that moment I received the Spirit of God, Um, and that you know, this work happened. Now, they didn't call it salvation. They called it a sacrament that would allow me to receive grace that would continue to help me to do works in order to achieve salvation. So they're not saying salvation takes place at that moment. So let's be fair to them and not blur theology. But the concept of the need for the Holy Spirit to come into someone's life is essential. Jesus called it being born again. Unless a man is born twice, he shall not enter the kingdom of God. So I would just take that concept, and then I would explore it biblically and say, well, here's the true meaning of confirmation. And I would, you know, try to speak with my granddaughter, assuming, you know, granddaddy, uh, you know, the mom and dad would, would give me that opportunity. And I would talk about how does the Holy Spirit come into a person's life and what prevents him from coming in? Well, you know, unforgiven sin and that creates, a, you know, a separation between us and God, and how is that separation dealt with? And so I would take some of their terminology, and rather than say attack it, I would turn it upside down. I'd use the devil's sword to cut off his own head, and I would go after the true meaning of confirmation, of what it means to be born again, because there, there is a thought there that's legitimate, that there has to be a point in someone's life where they personally, for themselves, um, embrace the faith of their parents. That's what Catholicism is teaching in confirmation, that a person is coming of age, just like um, in a Jewish family. Uh, someone is bar mitzvah. Uh, bar means son of in Hebrew. They become a son of the mitzvah, the, of the law. And so a young man is basically saying, I am in my own heart embracing the God of Israel and embracing the truth of what he teaches. And in Catholicism, what they're trying to say at confirmation, and by the way, there are Protestant denominations that use the same terminology that are sacramental, like high Methodists and Lutherans and so forth. And and we really do it as evangelicals, but we don't do it at a given age. And we don't say that a, a particular event has to take place through some leader in the church for it to unfold. But we're doing the same thing that we're saying our children are not believers because their parents are believers. That while God has children, he doesn't have any grandchildren. That our children have to personally make a decision for Christ. So I take the biblical concept and say, you know, to my granddaughter, this is a really important event in your life because the Bible teaches that there has to be a point where you have to decide for yourself what you believe. And then I would define it in biblical terms and try to go from there. Um, and again, putting resources in your um, daughter's hands, sometimes you'll see felt needs that are in the family, maybe issues of discipline or child rearing or finance, and, and to put Christian books in her hands that address those issues. Couples having problem with disciplining their children. I've won some people to Christ over that very issue. I'll say... And they weren't really open to dialogue with the gospel, but they were interested in finding out, how do I make my kids obey me? So I gave them a book like Richard Fugate's, What the Bible Says About Child Discipline. And they said, wow, this is like amazing. This is so practical. 
there's a lot of wisdom, and this is right out of the Bible. I said, yes, it is. God has a lot to say about every area of life. After all, he's the creator, the designer. He's wiser than any of us, and it sometimes can lead into a springboard or create a further hunger that um, God can use to bring about genuine conversion. So anyway, I hope that helps. And yeah, Absolutely. All right, great, good. Appreciate the question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. as has this listener uh, from Frankfurt, Illinois. She writes, in listening to your teaching on CD from your sermon on hell, um, I guess it must be the one we're playing on Search the Scriptures this week. That's uh, going on right now, isn't right? it? Uh-huh. Yeah, right, all right. Uh, I wanted to ask for clarification on the verses in Matthew 11, verses 20 to 24, where Jesus is rebuking the cities for the lack of response to his miracles. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. It sounds as if there were opportunities for hearts to be changed, yet Jesus didn't go there and do the miracles. Does Does this mean they repented and were saved later on, just not immediately? No, I don't think so. Let me just uh, let me just read that portion of Scripture because not everyone has the benefit of a Bible in their hands as I do this morning who are listening. Then he began to reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? Uh, You shall descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in in you, it would have remained until this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Jesus is teaching a a, a very important truth here, and it's simply this, that revelation given to people, however that revelation may come, uh, holds people accountable. And the more revelation you receive, the more accountable you are. And so Romans 2, for instance, speaks of people who are storing up, treasuring up wrath in the day of wrath. Jesus uh, spoke to believers about laying up or treasuring up reward in heaven. Well, there are unbelievers who are treasuring up wrath in the day of wrath. And that would certainly be true of these cities. They were witnessing right before them the promises that God had given in the Old Testament concerning Messiah, that there would be one that would come, a child would be born into us, and this child's name would be called Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Eternal Father. A baby is coming, and the baby's name is going to be called Mighty God. Isaiah predicts that, and he predicts the kinds of signs that will accompany Messiah's ministry, by which you could say, yes, he is indeed the Messiah. He will open blind eyes. He will unstop deaf ears. He will heal paralyzed limbs. He will make dead people come back to life. And Jesus did all those things. And he's in an area, um, three cities near the Sea of Galilee, um, where most of his public ministry took place. And yet, in spite of the miracles that they had witnessed before their eyes, that they should have known 
were confirmatory that he was the Messiah, because these are Jewish cities with Jewish people. Uh, In spite of that, they did not repent. And so Jesus, in essence, is saying, listen, because of the great revelation that you have and your refusal to respond to it, you're showing really how hard your hearts are. And he's not, you know, blowing smoke when he says, listen, if these miracles had been done in, in Sodom and Gomorrah and cities like that, they would have repented. Now, they didn't repent, but they would have repented, Jesus says, Um Now, they weren't given the privilege of those miracles because they didn't deserve the privilege of those miracles. There's a principle that's found in Scripture, light responded to brings more light. However, professing to be wise, Paul says they've become fools and they've exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. And so three times over in Romans 1, he says God gave them over. God gave them over to perform wicked things. God God let them have their own way. They kept saying no to God, no to God, no to God. And finally, God says, okay, I'll let you have your own way. I will say no to you. And one of the things that uh, characterizes a person who can be given over in a judgment from God, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire one towards another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own person the due penalty of their error. That's homosexuality. That's a judgment that God brings on a person's life when they suppress what they know to be true. That's Sodom and Gomorrah in a nutshell. And that's the, that's the society of the last days, because the society of the last days will be like the people in Noah's day and like the people in Lot's day, Jesus said. I was in Charleston yesterday with my wife. We went into three different stores. In three stores right in a row, we were obviously waited on by three homosexual men. It was so obvious, blatantly obvious. That's the society that we live in today. Um, and so, uh, no, Sodom didn't receive those miracles because, but, but Jesus said, if they had received those miracles and these cities weren't deserving of these miracles, but nonetheless, God, you know, wanted to confirm, uh, that his Messiah had come and he did what he promised he would do when Christ stepped on the earth, but they didn't repent. They only hardened their heart. And so his point was, is that there's greater judgment. Now, when you think about that, that's really sobering because in the book of Jude, when God deals with apostate religion, the book of Acts is the acts of the apostles. The book of Jude is the acts of the apostates. And it describes what apostates are like. And so he says, now I desire to remind you, though you, you know all things once for all, that the Lord after saving the people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper boat. He is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just like, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, they are exhibited, the Bible says, listen, as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. And so he says the people of Sodom and Gomorrah are an example of the coming judgment. Now, if you know anything about what happened, you'll remember Genesis 19. God burned the place into oblivion. 
there's nothing left. Some biblical scholars believe that this is actually the physical location of the Dead Sea today, and that that's why, indeed, um, nothing will grow and can be produced there. That may be debatable, but they may be right. But he destroyed the entire place with fire and brimstone, and he says that's an example of the coming judgment. Now, how as horrific as that was, um, God, to, and by the way, God uh, accents it with coming judgment of eternal punishment. The people in Sodom were immediately wiped out. And all, every unbeliever in Sodom immediately then went from fire and brimstone on the earth to fire and brimstone in, in Hades, which becomes the lake of fire. But if that's an example, and yet some cities will find it worse than the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, that it will be more tolerable for the people of Sodom than for the people of Bethsaida and so forth. Goodness. Uh, Hell is awful for anyone who goes there, just as heaven is wonderful for anyone who goes there. But heaven is not the same for everyone who goes there, and hell is not the same for everyone who goes there. Uh, It's worse for some people. Somehow God in his perfect, and we think, well, it's going to be terrible for Hitler. Well, it's going to be terrible for some people who had miracles done by the living, reigning Son of God upon the earth, who is literally physically present with the Spirit of God operating through him, fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament seen right before their eyes, and they basically spit in his face and said, he has a demon. Good night. I would hate to meet God in that state. Mm. Let's go to the next one. All right, our next uh, caller just dictated their question. In John five twelve through 14, Jesus healed a man, and after finding him in the temple, he said, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. Our listener says, We all sin, even after salvation. So when we're blessed, how do we not sin anymore because we don't want worse things to come? Well, um... It is true that, and let me just read the text here. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. Therefore, the Jews were saying to him who is cured, the one who is cured, of course, is uh, the healing that took place at Bethesda. Uh, If you remember, there was a man who, and by the way, we're going to Israel in September, and we're going to this very spot. Um, You can see this physical, actual place where this man was, and we're going to be there. And in these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, withered. The Bible says they were waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. And a certain man, the Bible says, was there who had been 38 years in his sickness. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time, he asked him the question, do you wish to get well? And of course, that's not an insincere question. That's a very sincere question. Some people don't want to get well. Some people like being sick. They like the sympathy. They like uh, maybe having an excuse to be lazy. They don't really want to be well. You know, I see some people sometimes they say, pray for me. The lady came up to me recently, pray for me. You know, I I had a mini stroke and I said, well, I understand. I will pray for you, but I'm going to pray that God's going to help you to adjust your eating habits because you're, you know, 75 pounds overweight. And, you know, she was digging her own grave with a spoon. Listen, you know, some people don't want to get well. And the doctor tells them some adjustments in lifestyle, but they don't really care to be well. The sick man answered him, sir, I, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. 
But while I am coming, another steps in before me. So Jesus said, Arise, take up your pallet and walk. And immediately the man became well and took up his pallet and began to walk. It was there. It was uh, the Sabbath on that day. That's an important note. Therefore, the Jews were saying to him who was cured, is it, uh, it is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. You talk about legalists. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, take up your pallet. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your pallet and walk? But he who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse may befall you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered, my father's working until now, and I myself am working. You know, Jesus healed some people. And in some texts of the New Testament where the healing took place, not only was there physical healing, but there was definite spiritual healing in terms of genuine, bona fide salvation. In other t- places, Jesus healed people and it had nothing to do with their faith. You know, I know people go around the country today and they call themselves faith healers. And if you're not healed, it's not their fault. It's your fault. It's your lack of faith. You didn't quote unquote believe. Uh, but there are some people that Jesus uh, healed in spite of their faith. He just healed them. There are some people whom he asked to take a step of faith like this man, take up your pallet and walk. He had to respond in faith. But... Um, Sometimes people would respond to the power of Messiah without necessarily responding to the power of his salvation. And Jesus, for instance, in one passage where he uh, deals with the sin of what we call blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and it, it's recorded in the Synoptic Gospels, and uh, the the Lord speaks of uh, judgment. Let me Let me just read. He says, now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of the man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it is with this evil generation. So, Jesus is is speaking here of a, a judgment that comes where, like the people of Israel, where they had some reformation without regeneration. They they clean themselves up on the outside, but not on the inside. And unless they did what was necessary, they might find themselves in a worse state than they were prior to that. And I think that's really the thought here behind this man. Jesus is asking him to respond beyond you know, the faith to heal, but to come and to grips with who he was and the one who had power over sin. And if he was unwilling to do that, that he could actually find himself in a worse state. Uh, You know, sometimes people want Christianity for all the wrong reasons. And that's really the message of the prosperity theologians. It's the message of Joel Olstein. I was going to say klepto dollar, but that's not right. Creflo dollar <laughs> and uh, a few other people um, that God's will is for you to be, you know, healthy and sick free and to be wealthy. And that will fill stadiums. It will produce huge followings. But that's not the message of the New Testament. 
Man's greatest need is not to be healed. Jesus certainly could have saved us, and then when he saved us, we could never have another sickness that would come upon us. The, the, the Lord, in some powerful ways, did miracles for his people in Israel. He said, look, the, the, the clothes on your back and the shoes on your feet for 40 years are not going to wear out. Like, I wear out a pair of shoes in eight months to a year. Jesus said they're going to last, uh, God, Yahweh said they're going to last 40 years. God certainly could do that with his people. Today you could get saved and never have another cold, sore throat, headache, um, but he doesn't. And he doesn't for a reason, many reasons. Uh, but one reason is that he wants people to come to Christ for the real reason that they need, and that is healing of the soul. And I think that's the thrust of John 5. Let's go to the next question. All right, indeed. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980. And email us at tbl at net. as has Dorina from Augusta, Georgia, who writes, I have a female family member who believes God has called her to full-time ministry and a leadership position in her church. This has been weighing heavy on my heart, and I have plans to speak with her on what the Bible says in 1 Timothy 2 about women not teaching or exercising authority over men. She has stated to me that she believes that Scripture to be time-bound and that Paul was speaking only to the women in that one church to learn in quietness because They were disrupting the church by asking questions during the worship services. I know this to be an error on her part, and I have heard other females use this explanation to justify their authority to serve as pastors. Can you clarify this for me so that I'll be able to explain it to my relative? It's a good question, and it's uh, typically an argument that's uh, used by egalitarian theologians today, where they say men and women are not only equal in stature, but they are equal in the roles that they can carry out. And so not only should we have pastors, they would argue we should have pastorettes. But that certainly is not true based on what you read plainly here in First Timothy chapter 2. And you can't pick and choose and say, oh, well, you know, I, I, this, this section is time-bound, but the rest of it is not time-bound. Okay, well, let's just start for the sake of argument. Let's pick it up in, let's see here, in verse... Uh, Verse 9, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, to adorn themselves, cosmios. We get our word cosmetics from it. Uh, with proper clothing, modesty and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold and, or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as befits women making a claim to godliness. Is that time bound? Is modesty and um, dressing yourself in a way that you don't, just call attention to yourself, some kind of flamboyant uh, dress or some immodest dress? Is that time-bound? Certainly not. Um, Then he goes on and he says, and it's no more time-bound than what he has said earlier in the chapter. You can't pick and choose and say, well, I want this to be time-bound, but I don't want that to be time-bound. None of this is time-bound. Likewise, I want women um, to adorn themselves. And then he says, let a woman, verse 11, quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Why? Because he says it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. So he says, listen, a woman is not to teach or exercise authority over a man. And by the way, this is given in the context of what should happen 
in a worship service and who should lead in the worship service. He's just said in verse 8, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Now, Paul is not saying that a woman cannot pray in church because clearly he says they can in 1 Corinthians. But men are to take the leadership, and he uses the word not anthropoi that could apply to men or women, but the Greek word androi or andros in the singular that applies to men in deference to women. Men are to lead in prayer. Men are to be leaders in the service. And unfortunately, the modern-day evangelical church has become feminized. We, We go to two extremes. We either don't appreciate women and the high and holy role that they can play when the assembly is gathered and in the other roles that God has given them to life. Or, or, or we, you know, that, that's one extreme. Um, or, you know, we, we, we basically emasculate men today, and we don't appreciate the leadership that God has called them to, to take. And so Paul's argument clearly is not time-bound because he brings it back to the order of creation, that 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 clearly is not a reference to something that's to simply a problem in the local church. He's saying, let me go back to the beginning and remind you what happened. That it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman was deceived. Now, Adam sinned, but not in deception. Adam sinned willfully. He sinned with his eyes open. But the woman, she was deceived. And why was she deceived? Why would he bring up this example? Because she stepped out of the role that, that, that God had given to her husband. She assumed headship in her dialogue with the evil one. And when you step out of your role that God has given you, then you really, among other things, you open yourself up to deception. And that's true really in any realm and for any person. But that's what Eve did. She stepped out of her God-given role and she opened herself up to, to temptation. And so he says, first of all, it was God who created Adam and then Eve. So he created Adam as the head, as Genesis teaches, and then Eve as the helpmate. So that's his first reason. And then he said the way the fall took place was because there was a reversal of what God had intended. Eve took the role of headship, and so it wasn't Adam who was deceived, but she was the one who was deceived. And then taking it to the positive realm, He said, but women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-respect. It's an interesting word here, and it's been uh, misunderstood. The old King James says, but women shall be saved, uh, literally, uh, is what the marginal note here in the New American Standard uh, notes. And so Mormons have taken this first to say, well, you know, that's why their Mormon women have to have so many, so many babies. And of course their view of salvation is really distorted and they come up with some wacko interpretations on first Timothy two fifteen. Uh, some have falsely taught that, you know, if a woman doesn't do this work, she won't go to heaven. It has nothing to do with it. The word save in the Bible has different dimensions to it. We're saved from the penalty of sin. We call that justification. We're saved from the power of sin. We call that sanctification. Someday we'll be saved from the presence of sin. We call that glorification. He's talking about a woman living out her God-given role. And when she does that, she's sanctified. She's made more like Christ. And let me just say parenthetically, having children today is not a bad thing. It's a blessing. You know, people today say, well, God bless me with money. 
bless me with health. I don't ever hear him saying, well, God, you've given me too much good health. Stop giving me so much money. But with children, oh, I already have one. Don't give me any more. I, listen, children are either a blessing from God or they are not. And when a woman carries out her role of bearing and raising up children, then she's carrying out a high and holy role. Women cannot teach or exercise authority over men. Now, my wife would say, well, I can teach men. Really? She said, yeah, just little men, uh, children. And I am actually the one that God is going to use to raise up a generation of leadership men for the church. And that's the perspective every mother should have, that she is raising uh, either women who will in turn raise up more leaders or she's raising up little men who will someday be leaders and spokesmen for Jesus Christ. Uh, that's the short answer. I spend two hours, two one-hour sermons on this portion of Scripture. So you might want to go to First Timothy 2 at searchthescriptures.org and listen to the complete message and all the feminist arguments, Deborah and everything else that they use to, to are the Proverbs 31 woman to argue against it. It's just so foolish. Some of the arguments that they, they come up with out of context, distorting the meaning of what God has plainly said. Next question. Let's see if we can hit one or two more. I think we've got time to do this one. Um, Tony from Baltimore would like to know where in the Bible you can find the seven deadly sins. Um, they're really uh, not found in the Bible. That's a medieval concept that came out of Catholicism. Um, some would point it to Catholics. Uh, that might be debatable, but, you know, they spoke of the seven deadly sins, pride, um, envy, gluttony, sloth, uh, lust, anger, and sloth, um, uh, lust, anger, greed, and sloth, um, However, in Proverbs 6, it says there are six things which the Lord hates. He has seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil. Very often in Proverbs, especially when you come to uh, Proverbs 30, um, where he says, oh, there are four things, yea, five. There are six things, yea, seven. Here there are six things God hates. He has even seven. Um, the emphasis, most would argue, is on the first and the last in the list, especially the last for emphasis. And so there are six things God hates, seven. It's not a complete list by any means, but here are seven, call them what you want, deadly sins if you, if you want a, a biblical list. Haughty eyes, that's pride, a lying tongue, that's deception, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Anyway, something to ponder today. Uh, Thanks for being with us on the Bible line. And uh, this is uh, rebroadcast at searchthescriptures.org. And so if you have a question during the week, you can email it to us. And Rick brings it up on the screen when I come in here on Tuesday morning. And you can always listen to your answer later online. He'll list the questions out, the order they were answered. You can kind of scan through the bar and find out where your question is answered. Hope you're having a great day. May the Lord bless you. 